BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, we made it through May 9th. So far, there was all this anticipation that Putin was going to use this victory day in Europe uh, over the Nazis' excuse to uh, blow up large parts of Ukraine. So far, knock wood, it hasn't happened. We've got a lot to talk about today. <laughs> Welcome to the program. The abortion firestorm is also a white freakout about the browning of America. I'll get to that in a moment. Also, should Rupert Murdoch and Tucker Carlson's assets be frozen for being Russian propaganda? This is an interesting op-ed that I think is worth paying some attention to. And Russians had infiltrated the Republican Party as early as 2008. The story is now coming out. And Mark Esper outlines Trump's most outlandish plans to abandon South Korea, hand them over to North Korea, abandon Poland, turn it over to, to Moscow, abandon all of Africa, turn it over to China. Yes. Who was he on the take with? We'll get to that. Greg Pallast is going to drop by, the uh, Guardian and other places reporter, BBC reporter. Takes, uh, he does a takedown of Dinesh D'Souza's new film, 2,000 Mules. It's, um, well, it's shocking, frankly. And also, should protesters be allowed to protest outside Supreme Court justices' homes? Big controversy around this right now as people are protesting outside the homes of Brett Kavanaugh and John Roberts, uh, basically on the assumption that those two are swing votes that might be able to derail Alito's extreme abortion ruling. I want to start, though, with the uh, op-ed that I wrote and published this morning over at HartmanReport.com. It's titled, The Abortion Firestorm is Also a White Freakout About the Browning of America. And the point that I wanted to make, up until relatively recently on this program, the focus, and, and, and in the media, frankly, the focus uh, around abortion or around the opposition to abortion has been on religion. It's been on, on, on the, basically the religious institutions who are opposed to abortion, which is the largest of those institutions in the United States, is the uh, white evangelical movement. The second largest is the Catholic Church. But yeah, who have both argued very, very strongly that abortion should be criminalized and, and, and birth control as well in many cases. Uh, but I think it's beyond, it goes beyond religion. There's a secondary freakout going on here. In fact, I think this is frankly the primary one. And religion is kind of their stalking horse. It's the thing they're holding up in front of them. It's the mask they put in front of their face. And that is that we're in the last ages of white supremacy right now in the United States. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, everything is going to be happy uh, racially in the, in the next uh, you know, year or even decade or even in my lifetime. But we are in the last ages of this. And it's scaring the hell out of white people who have bought into this ra racist belief that because of the color of somebody's skin, they are intellectually, physically, whatever it may be, morally superior or inferior based on that color. Um, this is nonsense pseudoscience, um, but it was promoted back in the era of slavery 400 years ago. It was used by Frederick Hoffman. I write about this um, at length in my book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare. And uh, Frederick Hoffman was the, uh, a vice president with a Prudential Insurance Company and traveled around the country between the 1890s and the 1940s, telling uh, lawmakers not to pass laws that provided health care to people 
because that would then provide health care to black people and because they were racially inferior. If we simply withheld health care, they would cease to exist. The, the race would die out and that would solve the race problem in America. I mean, this, is, this actually was that theory was animating laws that were on the books as recently as 1967 and insurance company policies that were on the books as recently as 1965. Insurance companies were charging black people more for life insurance and health insurance than white people because they asserted they were inferior and therefore more likely to die or more likely to get sick, which has nothing to do with that. It has to do with racism, as, as we all know. So there's this larger issue of race and these white supremacists who, who are, are very concerned, frankly, about the browning of America. Alito, and, and, and the, I think the, the flare that went off that uh, people across America have been noticing, particularly on social media, is this footnote in Justice Alito's uh, Dobbs v. Jackson opinion that has just caused an absolute firestorm. He's uh, either referencing or quoting a 2008 report from the Centers for Disease Control. And he writes, quote, nearly one million women were seeking to adopt children in 2002. In other words, they were in demand for a child. Whereas the domestic supply of infants relinquished at birth or within the first month of life and available to be adopted had become virtually non-existent. And he's actually right about this, which is, you know, I mean, people just go, oh my God, look at that. He's right. And in pointing this out, he is pointing out the whole white supremacist theory, right? I mean, this is, this is, by the way, this is the same argument that Amy Coney Barrett made. Hand, I should call her handmaiden, or handmaid uh, Amy. That's what she called herself when she grew up in the uh, People of Praise cult. Um, but she argued that forcing women to carry a baby to term is no big deal because you could separate the process or the burden of childbirth from the burden of parenting by simply taking away parenting. In other words, putting children up for adoption. And... She, she laid that out in the arguments. I won't read the whole thing to you because it's fairly, fairly long, but um, you know, she basically is like, hey, what's the big deal? People can just adopt these kids out after they give birth to them. Completely ignoring the fact that giving birth is not a health neutral proposition. Giving birth always puts a woman's life at risk. It may be a minimal risk if she's young and healthy, but there's a risk. Not to mention you know, other, other variables and factors. But let's be clear here. What Sam Alito and Amy Coney Barrett are talking about are white babies. And there is, as I said, you know, he's right about this. There is an actual shortage of white babies, and it started after the Roe decision. Um, this is a, a, a study done by Princeton University, concluded in 1993. This was published. Quote, among whites, over 19% of all premarital births were relinquished before 1973. So... Got that? Before Roe v. Wade, almost one in five white babies born in America was giving up for adoption. But just over 3% were relinquished between 1982 and 1988. Now, you, you can extrapolate that to today. Keep in mind this was published in 93 and they were using the statistics that were available at that time. But basically, the number of white babies going out for adoption went from one in five you know, 19% of all white babies being born down to 3%, which is one in, I don't know what, it's a much larger number. So black adoption rates, on the other hand, have always before Roe and since Roe, according to this study from Princeton University, have uh, remained right around 3%, excuse me, right around 2%. And the reason why appears to be that black families with unwanted children are more likely to place those children within their own families. Grandma is taking care, or uncle or aunt is taking care of the child. Um, you know, and which, which frankly kind of blows up a lot of the white racist arguments about the fracturing of the black family. It, it looks to me like you know, even stronger families. But you know, they, in any case, they, they point this out in this study and now you can get it. Now you understand. Now I understand. I mean, just reading this, it was like, holy cow, that really is what's going on. And there's this viral video going around of this woman describing this book called Birth Dearth by a guy who was, uh, uh, worked for the American Enterprise Institute. 
a conservative think tank. I used to debate their people on this program, um, in, in which he was, you know, essentially pointing out the same thing and saying that because the number of white people in America is diminishing, he, in the, I actually found an online copy of the book on, on the internet over the weekend and, and you know, skim read it. It's only about 120 pages. And, and it, he basically argues that this lack of white babies represents a threat to Western civilization or the values of Western civilization in the United States, as if civilization and whiteness are the same thing. And this is like all tied into religion as well. Over at Time Magazine, Kerry Wallace uh, wrote a piece called American, White American Christianity Needs to Be Honest About Its History of White Supremacy. Uh, Kerry writes, for the vast majority of American history, Christian ministers have spoken with passion and vigor in favor of slavery, segregation, and white supremacy. The Ku Klux Klan is a movement deeply rooted in the church in both the North and the South. So, you know, should it be, and, and so, A, you've got the birth of white babies. B, in 1965, we changed our immigration laws. Prior to that, only 20% of immigrants could be non-white, or only 16% could be non-white, because that was the non-white population of the United States in 1965. But, or 1921, rather. But in 1965, we changed that law. And so in 1960, 84% of all immigrants to the United States were white people. By 2017, that dropped to 13%. So is it any surprise that the same people who are freaked out about abortion are also freaked out about brown people and immigration? Are you seeing the connection here? Yes, some people are, are in this just entirely for religion. But if you look at the mainline religion, religious organization that are in, you know, institution that is pushing this, white Protestant evangelic, evangelicals, there is a deep strain of racism, of white supremacy actually, that runs through the white evangelical movement. So, you know, I think it's really important to point this out that this is not just about religion. This is also about race in the United States. And these guys are doing everything they can to keep white people in power as long as possible. And at some point, it's no longer going to work. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And then we're going to put together a country where everybody, you know, where, where all men are created equal, shall we say, from the, from the Declaration of Independence. Let's see here, picking up your phone calls. Jake in Elizabeth, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jake, what's on your mind today? I was calling to ask you to perhaps read the very short Ninth Amendment of the Constitution, and then even maybe the Tenth, because I think it really applies to this abortion stuff that's going on right now. And explain to me whether it does apply or doesn't apply and why. Sure. The Ninth Amendment, um, my little pocket Constitution, I don't know what's happened to it here. Here it is. Uh, the Ninth Amendment basically says that uh, even though we have I, I defined specific rights here in the Bill of Rights and Amendments 1 through 8, that your rights are not limited to these. That this shall not disparage rights left, you know, to the left of the people. It doesn't use the word disparage, but so what that and and when Roe v. Wade was decided, they specifically cited the Ninth Amendment in the Roe v. Wade decision, saying that just because the uh, Constitution doesn't say you have a right to abortion, it doesn't say you have a right to get married to anybody, it doesn't say you have a right to to have kids, it doesn't say you have a right to drive a car, it doesn't say you have a right to buy a you know there's there's a million rights, there's a million things we do you know routinely that are not listed in the Bill of Rights. And so what the Ninth Amendment says is, you know, that doesn't mean you don't have that right. Um, in fact, if, if government wants to take away that right, they have to specifically pass a law to limit it, like your right to smoke pot, for example. You know, the government limited that in the 1920s or 1930s. So, um, therefore, if you look at other amendments in the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, um, which guarantees the, the right to speak and the right not to speak, which is presumably a right of privacy, the right to hold back your thoughts. The Third Amendment, the right not to put soldiers in your home, in other words, the right to privacy in your home. The Fourth Amendment, the right to be secure in your person, papers, and effects uh, from unreasonable search and seizure, another pro obvious pri privacy right. The Fifth Amendment, which says you don't have to, uh, to uh, testify against yourself, another privacy right. 
that in aggregate, those combined with the Ninth Amendment, which says that you know we haven't given up any of these rights, um, therefore we're finding that there is a privacy right in the Constitution, and that it's not one of the enumerated rights, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Um, you know, the word privacy doesn't appear in the Constitution in large part because privacy in 1787 meant use the toilet. Uh, use the, they didn't even have toilets then; it was outhouses. But you know. Um, and, and so, did I just make sense, Jake? Did I answer your question? Not really. Okay. Then. Why doesn't it apply to abortion rights? Oh, uh, because an abortion right is the woman's right to make her own decisions about her own body until the point where the fetus has become a viable person, at which point it's not just her body. And that's the third trimester, basically, which is why that right basically goes away after, after, the, after the beginning of the third trimester. And given that it's her own body, it's her private choice to decide whether to carry that baby to term or that fetus to term or to abort it. That, that's the bottom line, Jake. Jake, thanks a lot for the call. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Okay, so we've got number one, you know, the, this, this whole abortion and race and everything else. Number two I wanted to share with you is uh, this piece that was published by Nick Cohen in The Guardian, uh, I believe over the weekend. It's titled, Fox News Deals in Pro Kremlin Propaganda, So Why Not Freeze Rupert Murdoch's Assets? And when I first read the headline, I was like, well, but... You know, he builds a really strong case. You know, he says, you know, Tucker Carlson is pushing out Russian propaganda that NATO provoked poor Vladimir Putin and that the West is plotting to use biological weapons and the Biden administration is, is uh, defending Ukraine uh, because they're trying to avenge Donald Trump's victory in 2016. And, you know, all these things were huge hits in Moscow. Tucker Carlson and other Fox hosts have been played over and over and over again on state-owned television in Russia. And uh, in fact, Russia's 60 Minutes program included Tucker Carlson's, uh, one of Tucker Carlson's rants, not once, but twice in the same program. Uh, so there's this, you know, Murdoch is boosting Russian morale, he writes, and conversely undermining Ukrainian resolve by supplying a dictatorship with foreign validation. And he says, this is, this is a really important thing because people in Russia know that, you know, Pravda and Tast are, are words that mean uh, news and truth. And the, the old joke in Russia used to be, there's no Pravda and Tast and no Tast and Pravda, right? No truth in the news and no news in the truth, um, or in the, in the network. And, but when Russian propaganda programs play a Fox host, People in Russia watch that going, oh, geez, that's, a, that's an American. So I guess the Russians are telling the truth when they say that the only reason Russia is invading NATO is defensive, you know, to stop NATO. 
He points out that the UK's sanctions regulations include among the reasons for freezing an oligarch's assets, quote, obtaining a benefit from or supporting the government of Russia. But the Biden White House promises to punish, quote, those responsible for providing the support necessary to underpin Putin's war on Ukraine. Well, how is Murdoch not doing that? I mean, if, if, if Murdoch and his son, who, who run Fox News, were Russian rather than Australian, do you think they'd still be getting away with this? I mean, the UK, the EU, and the U.S. have already announced sanctions against Russian broadcasters. In fact, we sanctioned uh, American companies from advertising on Russian broadcasters day before yesterday. So, and, and by the way, the Murdoch Empire has, you know, the, the Times of London and the Wall Street Journal, and they've done a fine job of reporting on what's going on in Ukraine, but not Fox News. Should they be sanctioned? You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Is it time to take away the Murdoch family empire or assets? It's a pretty provocative question. Tom Hartman here with you. I wanted to flag one other story for you that I thought was really rather shocking. Steve Schmidt, you know, who ran John McCain's campaign back in the day, in a Twitter thread on Friday, laid out some pretty surprising stuff. I'll read it. You can find it on his uh, Steve Schmidt SES is his Twitter handle. You can find it on Twitter. He said, I had no interest whatsoever in running a presidential campaign in 2008. One of my closest friends was running John McCain's campaign and John Weaver was the chief strategist. There were two factions in the campaign. Now just let that sink in for a moment. There are two factions in the McCain campaign. There was a pro-democracy faction, and there was a pro-Russia faction. This is 2008. This is before Trump was on the scene. He continues, the pro-democracy faction was led by Weaver, and the pro-Russia faction was led by a Washington lobbyist who was in business with Paul Manafort. You'll recall Paul Manafort then went to Ukraine where he worked for the Russians to put Viktor Yanukovych in charge of Ukraine, who was a Putin toady and who was overthrown by the people of Ukraine, ultimately sending Paul Manafort packing back to the United States with the 12 or $13 million he was paid to put Yanukovych in place, where he then volunteered to work to run Donald Trump's primary campaign for the, for the Republican you know, presidential nomination for free. So anyhow, back to Steve Schmidt. He says, like man, he, he, the pro-democracy faction was led by Weaver and the pro-Russia faction was led by a Washington lobbyist who was in business with Paul Manafort. Like Manafort, he had a Trump Tower residence. Oh, interesting. He was in charge of the campaign finances and bankrupted the campaign through a series of unethical transactions and markups with Manafort and a company called 3EDC. The campaign was destroyed over a massive fight over John McCain's greatest blind spot. Um, and then, you know, which was uh, Meghan McCain. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, uh, it, it, then he goes on to rant about uh, Meghan. Oh, and then he said, uh, I'll attach a story from The Nation that I read recently, though it is from 2008. It is spot on, Meghan McCain. Your father tolerated his campaign chairman being in business and working for Putin through his association with Yanukovych. Yanukovych, as you probably have no idea, he's sending this, he's addressing this to Meghan McCain. They're, they're in kind of a pissing war right now. He says, Yanukovych, as you probably have no idea, was Putin's puppet in Ukraine. The story of American corruption in Ukraine starts there. It starts in John McCain's operation, not Trump's. Megan, did you know that your dad was taken on Ola Deripaska's yacht in Meg Montenegro for his 70th birthday by his top aide? It was a McCain guy who represented the interests of the Russian government in the Montenegro independence referendum. Weaver was aghast. This is why the campaign went kaboom in July of 2008, and your father went from front runner to middle seat on a Southwest flight with the National Press Corps gathered in New Hampshire waiting for him to drop out. That is when John McCain called me and asked me for help. It is the opening scene of Game of Change. And then, you know, he continues to go on with his rant about Meghan McCain being a terrible person, <laughs> or a spoiled brat, essentially. But that was fascinating, very fascinating. So what do we make of all this? Andre in Chicago. Hey, Andre, thanks for listening to WCPT. What's up? 
Hey, Tom, how you doing today? Good. What's on your mind? Hey, uh, first I want to say, uh, with Rupert Murdoch and Tucker Carlson, not only should their assets be frozen, they ought to be charged with sedition or treason with what they've been doing. You know, they, you know, not just the assets being frozen. Uh, I don't know what the guy's name is that you mentioned, uh, said that they wanted to have those white babies born, but that's kind of a hypothetical thing because even if you had a million white babies, there's no guarantee that they're going to vote white. There's no guarantee they're going to vote Republican or they, they're going to vote Democrat. Right. The, you're, you're describing the worst nightmare of these white supremacists, Andre. And it's happening. Yeah. It's yeah. happening. Well, it's white allies. It's white people who have, yeah. they, they ridicule us and say that we're woke. But, you know, it's, uh, it's white people who are awake to the fact that we're all just human beings here. Well, I don't see nothing wrong with being woke. I thank God that this is being woke. Uh, about this abortion, Tom, I think it's a bit hypocritical for these Republicans to be pushing this uh, pro-life thing like they're doing this abortion because just look at the rights they give the people once they are born. Look at what they're doing now. They don't want you to say gay. They don't want you to, to read books in school. They ban in the books. They take away your voting rights. So what are they saying? They want you to have pro-life, but what kind of life is that is once they get here and then they're restricted by, by all of these uh, things that the Republicans are doing to the, to, to the kids. Right. No health care, no, no uh, you know, if you're yeah. in poverty, no food, no housing. Yeah, uh, it's an excellent point, Andre. They, they are, they are pro-fetus rather than pro-life is what's going on here. Um, you know, on the assumption, yeah. right, on the assumption that once those white babies are born, there are going to be wealthy white families who are going to want to adopt them and, and we can make America white again. That's the whole thing. Andre, thank you for the call. Tim in Rochester, New York. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today? Hey, I just wanted to go ahead and ask you about abortion. Abortion is a federally granted right, and we've let the states take the lead on that. And I think one simple way to go ahead and get that back to ensure that women can go ahead and control their own destiny is to possibly go ahead and provide safe space for abortion clinics on federal lands, such as military bases, post office, and those types of things. And that would go ahead and remove the state's influence and power, but still make abortion available. And I think that, call me crazy, but this could be done through an executive order because this, this is all within the executive branch. So I just wanted to toss that out Whoa. there as a different way of thinking about that. That's and I also a want to go ahead and fascinating props. idea, uh, Tim. Yeah. That's, and that's... I want to go ahead and give props to my wife for coming up with it. Okay. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, Tim's wife. Uh, thank you. Uh, that's, that's fascinating. I, you know, I doubt post offices would work because typically the, the land footprint isn't big enough to add another building. You sure. Know? Um, uh, but a military base, I mean, military bases typically have medical facilities on them already. It would be a matter of expanding a military facility, um, you know, with just one building. It, it doesn't need to be huge. And that would be a way yeah. to ensure, for example, in Texas, you know, legal abortion. It doesn't get around the, 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 the posse, you know, the, the vigilante aspect of their their laws but i'm i'm guessing that those are going to be struck down um you know when the when the when california's what, what, california was uh, doing a vigilante law of their own i i forget what it was around it maybe it was pollution or something like that but whatever it was oh uh, no it was guns um if you you know if yeah. you know somebody who illegally sold somebody a gun you can you can get a ten thousand uh, dollar reward and i'm guessing that the supreme court is not going to let that stand but Tim, I love the idea. I, I, if anybody who is listening is a is a lawyer or a constitutional scholar or has any background in in this and military law and other things, um, I would love to hear your opinions. Give us a shout. And uh, although you, you got to keep trying, all, all the lines are tied up right now. But you know, there's they occasionally pop open. Tim, thank you, thank you for that. I, I appreciate it. That was a great one. Dale in Pensacola, Florida. Hey, Dale, what's on your mind today? Uh, just discuss Anthony Kennedy being one of the, the stepping stones for uh, the Republicans to, to pack the court with right-wingers. Right it's the only reason that the uh, Republican Party held its nose and supported Trump is I believe that one of, the, one of the factors was that he thought he could deliver Anthony Kennedy via the, the Deutsche Bank entanglement. I, uh, I, I think you're right, thing. yeah. Okay, thank you, Dale. Yeah, the, the, for people who don't know what we're talking about, and I think this is a really important point, uh, an important historical point, if nothing else. Donald Trump appointed three people to the Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch, Beerbong Kavanaugh, and Handmaid Barrett. And 
the first, Gorsuch, he was only able to appoint because a year before he took office, Scalia died, and they just held the seat open. Mitch McConnell refused to hold hearings for Merrick Garland. So that was an illegitimate placement on the court, Neil Gorsuch. Then, for some reason, Anthony Kennedy, in the prime of life, he was you know, in his 70s, and he was healthy and hale and hearty, and still is. I mean, he's walking around, giving speeches and doing stuff. Anthony Kennedy suddenly decided to step down right around the same time that his son, Justin Kennedy, uh, was revealed to be the guy who signed off on a billion dollars worth of sketchy loans from Deutsche Bank to Donald Trump. And I'm of the opinion that Trump blackmailed Kennedy into resigning. And then the third appointment that, that Trump had was Amy Coney Barrett, and that happened when, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And that happened within weeks of the presidential election. And there have been multiple cases. You know, you'll recall Mitch McConnell said, you know, you can't replace a Supreme Court justice in an election year. And that was the whole you know, rationale that he had for blocking Merrick Garland for the, the entire last year of Obama's presidency. But all of a sudden, I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was not even in the ground when Barrett's nomination was being debated in the Senate. And they passed this thing after Trump had lost the election. They put Barrett on the Supreme Court, which had, to the best of my knowledge, never happened before. So uh, three illegitimate placements on the court. All righty, Michael in the Bronx, New York. Hey, Michael, what's up? Hi. First, just to recap what you were talking about, the justices, mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell blocked that because had there been another appointment by Obama, that would have tilted the court for the first time in U.S. history, 5-4 Democrat. Not so for the first Mitch time McConnell in U.S. history. What, for the first time since the echo of the FDR administration. FDR ultimately right. appointed every single member of the court by the end of his term. Or the end of oh, his okay. you know, life, yeah. All right, but you know where I was going with I that. Do. So McConnell knew what the hell he was doing. You betcha. When it comes to the Roe v. Wade thing, you were spot on when you say about black babies versus white babies, because when you look at it, even the black expected mothers are not getting the equitable prenatal treatment as white expected mothers are. You look at um, when it comes to gun violence. Um, None of these GOPs want to talk about that. They always want to claim Second Amendment this, Second Amendment that. But then when it comes to a black holding a gun, then it's criminal possession of a weapon. They and we've got to um, shoot you. <laughs> I mean, you know, look at the police yeah. killings, right? It, there's so many inequities going on. Yes. And yeah. so it's like... It, when a black man is pulled over in a traffic stop and says, Officer, I have a, a, a license and a, and a concealed weapon, and I'm going to show you my license. Bang, he's dead. I'm, I'm forgetting which and they don't even realize that Roe v. Wade, there's nothing in the decision that says about abortion, it says about... You're yep. listening yeah. to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Yeah, well said, Michael. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Stasia in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Stasia, what's up? A couple of things. Sounds like Rupert Murdoch's son should be convicted of being an agent of a foreign government. <laughs> it's, you you would it, think on some days, yeah. Uh, what I really called to talk about was the abortion issue. It's not mentioned really in too many places that the number one cause of death in a pregnant woman is homicide, and that's by the prospective father. And the second most common cause of death is suicide. 
so, I mean, being pregnant is, is a very dangerous thing. Yeah. And the other thing is, there you, seems to be kind of a misconception that it's just young single women that are seeking abortions. When, in fact, of course, there's married couples who are dealing with that issue over potentially my understanding genetic is that, issues. Yeah, my understanding is that the majority of abortions are done with women who already have children. Exactly. Well, More they may or may not be married, but yes, right. they know what it, you know, they, they know whether they can afford a child, whether they have the emotional ability to care for a child. And there's a lot of older women who find themselves pregnant in the later years who truly being pregnant is dangerous to their health as right. well as their mental health. Right. I mean, it's just, it, it just boggles my mind that they are basically telling women you have to die rather than, right. I mean, if you get pregnant, you're going to have to die. And the only option may be that women are just going to have to withhold sex. They don't want to take that risk. Yeah, sadly, that's, that's not going to happen. I mean, you know, history tells no, us that. No, but that's sad. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's a it, it is it's a it's a tragic commentary on on our society and uh, and on what's going on here. I I just you know I think it's so so very sad. I'm with you, Stasia. Thank you very much for the call, uh, Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. You know, it was kind of encouraging uh, Vladimir Putin's speech on the um, on his commemoration day there, mm -hmm. um, because he didn't he didn't you know state any any escalatory language. I mean, but you know, we need to like maybe take a step back and look at this. He did say that um, the the West, the, you know, what they refer to as the West, NATO, I suppose, mm -hmm. is specifically targeting Crimea. Now, I thought that level of specificity was interesting and if you couple that with what general clark has been saying and i know there's a lot of competition among these contributors to cnn all right but general clark i've worked for before and he's a pretty sober thinker and he thinks long term he was saying that um you know the u.s is sending uh high mars missiles into you know the high mars rocket system they're trying to send that into Ukraine. And he's saying that the speed at which they're receiving these weapons is it's too slow. And like yeah. any any army, any military, Russia, the longer you give them, the, lo the more they'll learn. Yeah. And they will learn and they will adapt. And um, to tell you the truth, I, I'm wondering if, you know, people in Russia will eventually, you know, buy this, um, you know, hostility that the West is supposedly doing towards Russia, I mean. Well, never underestimate the power of propaganda. You know, George Bush was able to use that to lie us into a war in, in uh, Iraq. I mean, you know, it's uh, every country is vulnerable to it, Dave, as you know, as you well know. Dave, thank you. Thank you for the call. I agree with you. I, I, was, uh, I was relieved, frankly, by Putin's speech. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Yes, Tom. Um, uh, just to clarify, a previous caller uh, said that abortion is a federally granted right. That is not quite accurate. It, the right to privacy is, was recognized in Griswold and Roe as a fundamental constitutional right that we enjoy as citizens of the United States. Right. It's a federally That's protected right. This, federally protected right. Recognized as a federally protected right, a fundamental right that is a priori. It's, in, it's, it's what we have as citizens of the of the United States and what this court is about to do, this disparate uh, bench uh, that is a minority of the aggregate. By the way, all of the justices, the vast majority of justices that have up, that found Perot and upheld Roe were Republicans, all of them. The Democrats had virtually nothing to do with this. This is not a repeal of democratic liberalism. But what worries me, Tom, and since this is what we're saying is that you do not have a fundamental right to privacy and reproductive choice, this brings up the issue of the 1927 case of Buck versus Bell, where the Supreme Court uh, upheld the power of the state of Virginia to sterilize someone for being what was then called an imbecile or mentally retired, or we now say developmentally disabled. Carrie Buck was later found to be wrongly determined that she was not developmentally disabled. She was just un uneducated, ignorant person. And you can imagine in 1927, rural Virginia, you know, she might yeah. have been and she sounding was shy. like, yeah, 
And so the state could, if this is about tipping white balance, there are, this would be an easy, I don't see the court has any way out of this. In other words, if Buck versus Bell was never overturned, but when we had Roe, they could have, of course, if a state wanted to sterilize people, they could have said, no, Roe, forgive the term, trumps Buck. So, so now that they're overturning Roe, there's absolute because. So you're suggesting we could go back to Tuskegee experiment times and basically just start or, you know, sterilizing Native American women, which was a big deal all across the United States in the 1920s. Um, in fact, the Abenaki in Vermont were officially wiped out by a government sterilization program. Um, you're saying that the federal government could start sterilizing people of color at the same time they're preventing white women from getting abortions. Not the federal government, the states. That's what this states. is all about. Thank you. Yeah, the state, the state can do this, and I don't see how the Supreme Court with this, how they can stop them. A state can decide, uh, and, and by the way, they could say if you want to go, because the reason in Buck versus Bell, they said the, the, state has, the, the state has a compelling interest in not, you know, as, as uh, Holmes wrote, Three generations of imbeciles is enough because they're going to be living on on state. Um, they're dependent on the state, and so if you're on, if you want to go on welfare, state assistance, you could they can assist. Oh, you have to be sterilized. Wow. And if I you mean, have, there's no way, how, there's no way around this. Well, there, you know, they didn't find a right to privacy in 1927. I mean, that that really was not discovered in the Constitution until uh, until the 19 what until the 1970s, really. Um, you know, 60, well, 65 Griswold. I yeah, say, 65 right? Griswold. Yeah. And so, okay. so, you know, what was the what was the pivot point that Buck v. Bell turned on? States, right. The state had a compelling interest in in making sure that people that were would become. A but that got, it got struck state. down. No, it was not. It was upheld eight to one. So in Buck v. Bell, the, the Supreme Court said, yes, Alabama, you may sterilize imbeciles, to use that old word. Yeah, yeah Virginia, yes. Virginia. Terry, Buck was steril- Terry Buck was sterilized. So when was that overturned? It was never. That's what I'm saying. It never was. Oh, my God. It I, th- never I was. thought Buck v. Bell was the opposite. I thought it was overturning the, the ability of the states to do that. So the states no, technically was, still and- have that power to sterilize people that they consider to be a potential financial burden, essentially. Yeah, and we don't have Roe as a, at least a, a pivot point to say, no, you can't do that because you now have a right to privacy. Right. That's amazing. Paul, thank you. Uh, <laughs> all kinds of fascinating stuff. Military bases. Buck Bell. We'll be back. I want to share with you uh, uh, another story here about Trump's most outlandish plans. This, this I thought was really shocking. Everybody's talking about Mark Esper saying that Trump wanted to shoot protesters in the legs when they were out in front of the White House. But nobody's talking about the fact that he tried to pull our troops out of Poland, NATO. This is a NATO country. Let's take American troops out of Poland. Now, why would he pick Poland? Well, just happens to turn out that Poland is like, you know, the big place that that uh, Russia would like, Putin would like. And, of course, Donald Trump was an agent of, of Vladimir Putin. I mean, it was, I think it's, it's becoming increasingly clear. He also, Mark Esper talks about this in his book, he, uh, Donald Trump also wanted him uh, to pull American troops out of South Korea. We have a little more than 30,000 troops in South Korea, uh, protecting basically South Korea from North Korea and China. And... Who would that benefit? Well, North Korea and China, ending South Korea. And he wanted a complete pullout of all U.S. diplomatic and military personnel from every country in Africa. I mean, this is, this is just as bad as it gets. This is just as bad as it gets. I also wanted to bring up, should protesters be allowed to protest outside of the homes of Supreme Court justices? And allowed is maybe too strong a word. You will recall back in 1984, I believe it was, the Supreme Court ruled that abortion clinics could not put up barriers around the clinics to prevent protesters from standing on their lawn or on their sidewalks, you know, yelling at people going in to get abortions. Because they said that those 
those persons' rights to peaceably assemble and petition their government for redress of grievance, which is in the First Amendment, that exact language, that that right was being violated by the abortion clinics putting up fences around the clinic. And of course, now, last week, the Supreme Court put up a fence around the clinic. But apropos of that, should, should people be allowed to stand outside of, you know, uh, Brett Kavanaugh's house? That's where they are right now. They're, they're outside Brett Kavanaugh's house. They're outside John Roberts' house. On Morning Joe on MSNBC, they were arguing that, no, people shouldn't be allowed to do that because it just basically angers people. You know, like, you don't want to have Brett Kavanaugh on your side. You don't want to have John Roberts on your side. All you have to do is protest outside their house. In other words, it's counterproductive. And I think you can build an argument for that, but is it right or is it wrong? I mean, the, the opposite argument is these guys are saying that, you know, women in America are going to die and rape and incest and trafficking victims. Trafficking doesn't get mentioned anywhere near enough in all of this. Human trafficking victims are not eligible to get an abortion and, you know, they're going to have a lifelong crisis even if they put a child up for adoption. And so what is the right way to do this? I mean, I, I was looking at this thinking, okay, I'm a public figure. <laughs> I would not be pleased if, you know, I had protests out in front of my house every day. On the other hand, I recognize that this is a, this is a right. This is a right of all people. And, you know, in the United States to protest, uh, to, to peaceably assemble and, and petition for redress of grievance. So what are your thoughts on this? Do you, think, do you think it's a good idea? This all got, you know, this, this became a firestorm, basically, because on Saturday, I believe it was, the Washington Post did a really good in-depth uh, profile of uh, a young woman who is protesting outside Brett Kavanaugh's house. And she lives in the neighborhood. He lives in a fancy part of Washington, D.C. I believe it's Chevy Chase. And, uh, you know, she lives in the neighborhood, too. So and, and, you know, up until now, there's a lot of, you know, famous and wealthy and powerful people who live in those kind of neighborhoods. And typically it never comes to their house. Right. Protests are limited to their offices or, or you know, their buildings or whatever. Um, but it doesn't ever come to the house. So the question is, what do we do? You know, what should I guess the debate was, is it appropriate for her to do this? And her neighbors were split. Half of her neighbors were like, holy cow, she should not be doing that. You know, this, this, is, this is wrong. And half of her neighbors were saying, yeah, it's fine. No big deal. So well, not, I, I don't know if it was half and half. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on that and, and how that might play out. I'm going to hit the break early here, and we'll take a break for four minutes, five minutes here, whatever. And hopefully on the other side of this break, we'll be back with Greg Palast, and he'll be able to tell us all about this new movie that uh, the right wing thinks is going to put Donald Trump in the White House in 2024. So stick around. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us by Rachel Louise Snyder. I'm reading from the preface. This is page four. Suzanne and I exchanged small talk on her brother's driveway. She told me she worked for a domestic violence agency in town and that they had recently developed a new program that she was calling the Domestic Violence High Risk Team. Their primary aim was simple, she said. We try to predict domestic violence homicides before they happen so we can prevent them. It sounded immediately implausible. So implausible, in fact, that I thought I'd misheard some elemental piece of it. Predict, I remember saying? You said predict domestic violence homicides? I had come across domestic violence in my reporting over the years, not only in Cambodia, but also in places like Afghanistan, Niger, and Honduras. But it had never been a focus for me. Instead, it was always adjacent to whatever other story I was writing, so much so that it was practically banal. The young girls jailed for love crimes in Kabul, the Indian child brides who gave interviews only in front of the men who controlled them, the Tibetan women forcibly sterilized by the Chinese government, the teenage brides in Niger cast from their villages after post-pregnancy fistulas made them pariahs. 
the Romanian women forced to birth multiple children under Ceausescu and who now in their early 30s were grandmothers fated to poverty, the Cambodian street workers beaten and gang raped for weekend sport by well-heeled Khmer teenagers. All of these women in every country were brutalized and controlled by men as a matter of routine. Men made the rules primarily through physical violence. It was there lurking in practically every story I'd ever covered around the world, a shadowy background so obvious I didn't even have to ask about it most of the time. It was as common as rain. Until that moment in the driveway with Suzanne Dubas, if I thought of domestic violence in the United States at all, I saw it as an unfortunate fate for the unlucky few, a matter of bad choices and cruel environments. A woman hardwired to be hurt. But I never envisioned it as a social ill, an epidemic we can actually do something about. Now here was Susan Dubas talking about preventative measures for a type of violence that, for the first time, I saw operating along a continuum. The young girl in India married as a child, the Tibetan woman sterilized, the Afghan woman jailed, the housewife in Massachusetts brutalized by her husband. They all shared a common privation, what domestic violence victims across the world lacked, agency in their own lives. The forces that brought a Cambodian prostitute to the brink of death were the same forces that killed thousands of women and children and men, but mostly women and children, across America and the entire globe every year. An average, in fact, of 137 women each and every day are killed by intimate partner or familial violence across the globe. And this does not include men or children. Everything in my body suddenly came alive that day. I saw all the faces of women around the world from over two decades of work, and I realized how rarely I'd gazed inward at my own country, at what we got wrong and what it meant. The universality of domestic violence and how it crisscrosses geographical, cultural, and linguistic barriers. Maybe all those other stories were in preparation for the day that I'd meet Paul Monson and look at the mountains from his living room windows. I ended up following Suzanne to the farmer's market and then to the grocery store and then to the liquor store as she prepped for her camping trip. I helped her carry ice and peaches and hamburger meat. I asked question after question while she drove and while her mother Pat sat in the passenger seat chiming in here and there. How did it work? How many have you stopped? What else can you predict? My questions were vast and endless. Like many people who hold a casual acquaintance with a problem, I believed all the common assumptions. That if things were bad enough, victims would just leave. That restraining orders solved the problem. And that if a victim didn't show up to renew a restraining order, the problem had been solved. That going to a shelter was an adequate response for victims and their children. That violence inside the home was something private, unrelated to other forms of violence perhaps most notably mass shootings, that a lack of visible injury signaled a lack of seriousness, and perhaps most of all, that unless we stand at the receiving end of a punch, such violence had nothing to do with us at all. Over the next few years, Suzanne Dubas and her colleague Kelly Dunn patiently taught me about the scope and history of an issue that still today is too often hidden. I learned why past approaches had failed and what we could do more effectively today. Between 2000 and 2006, 3,200 American soldiers were killed. During that same period, domestic homicide in the United States claimed 10,600 lives. This figure is likely an underestimate, as it was pulled from the FBI's supplementary homicide reports, which gathered data from local police departments, and participation is voluntary. Twenty people in the United States are assaulted every minute by their partners. Former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan called violence against women and girls the most shameful human rights violation. And the World Health Organization called it a global health problem of epidemic proportions. A study put out by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime cited 50,000 women around the world were killed by partners or family members in 2017 alone. 50,000 women. The UNODC report called home the most dangerous place for women. The book, No Visible Bruises, by Rachel Louise Snyder. Welcome back. So, Greg Palace, we now have a telephone in your hand. <laughs> so, tell us about this. Dinesh D'Souza has a new movie yep. out that he and Donald Trump think is going to put Don Trump in the White House in 2024. Tell us about it. Oh, indeed. Okay, it's called 2,000 Mules, and here is the stone-cold evidence that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, that you have Soros and Zuckerberg and Stacey Abrams spending hundreds of millions of dollars to buy almost a million stolen ballots or traffic them 
and hand them to 2,000 mules. These are black men who are stuffing the drop boxes in Georgia, in Atlanta, in Detroit, Philadelphia. And that's how Trump lost the election. It was stolen from him by these mules. Now, here's the thing, Tom. Now, you may laugh at this, that these mules are going, are stuffing the ballot, uh, the drop boxes. In fact, when you drop your ballot into a drop box, Tom, in Georgia or anywhere else, there is a camera which takes pictures. They got all the video, which is public, of every voter dropping off a ballot. And they said that they had photos. They showed a black man going to a ballot box, leaving his car, putting his ballots. When you drop off ballots, most people have a couple from their family, which is, you know, legal. Right, I would every drop off Louise's, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, he drop, so he's dropping off a couple of ballots. They show another black man with a dog dropping, putting in a ballot. And you have Larry Elder there says, oh, my God. And this is a quote. This is smoking gun. This is O.J. Simpson being seen leaving the scene of a crime. Oh. Uh, this is a black man stuffing a ballot. But to, to most people, I think it would be a picture of a black man voting. But... Understand, they say they have all the photos. They said this one guy went to 27 different boxes. The average mule goes to 25 drop boxes. They have all of the, the film. But this Tom, is their allegation. But do they, they name it, any of these people? Oh, that's the other thing is that they have their names, right? There are by the, of these two to 54,000 mules. They have names. They said these are we have they have bad reputations. They're violent. But they didn't name one. Now, I'm an investigative reporter. I've never done a story in my life where I found a perpetrator of a crime and didn't name them. In fact, that's the point. When we right. filmed the bad guys, the, the neo-Nazis beating up the teacher in Charlottesville, our man C.D. Roberts, we put their pictures on the front of the Daily News until they were all found and arrested. So these are bad guys. Why not, as, as Trump would call them, why not name them and shame them? Worse, they claim that these people were paid by so-called not-for-profit organizations, and they show Stacey Abrams' picture. They show Mark Zuckerberg's picture. They say that uh, Zuckerberg and Warren Buffett and uh, George Soros have the money to buy all these ballots. So let me get this straight. They can this say is, that they did it. This they is didn't a, confront them. Right, so, right they've got, so they've got video of black men voting and sometimes putting two or three ballots into a ballot box because they're bringing the ballots from their family in and, and posting them. So, so you've got black men voting. They're claiming that these black men are voting in multiple locations, but the they claim to have video of, of right. these black men voting in multiple but locations. But they only show they them show voting in one location every single, in every yeah. single case. Yeah. And this is all paid for by a couple of Jews, Zuckerberg yeah. and Soros. Right. Now, they don't say what the evidence is, They've never confronted them. They say that they're using not-for-profit organizations, but they don't say which not-for-profit organization. I mean, Stacey Abrams has verified Georgia. So are they the ones handing out this money, committing these crimes? And here's the other thing. Here's their big piece of smoking gun evidence. They use geo-tracking. And this is what impresses everyone in the audience, going wild, all these Trumpsters. The, by the way, these places were standing room only all over the country on the release of this film, and, and it, it started Mar-a-Lago, by the way, or it's where it was released. But their big thing is that they use geotracking. They bought a trillion data points of cell phones, and they were showing, look, here are these mules, these 2,000 people who've gone by not just one drop box, but many drop boxes, six, seven, eight, on the average of 25 drop boxes. And Tom, what they don't tell you is that geo-tracking, yes, uh, you know, Walmart, you, you can go and buy. I can, like, uh, look up people going by Tom Hartman's home or something. It's only accurate within 30 meters, about 93 feet. So if you are jogging down the street and you go past three drop boxes, and, but you're across a highway, but you're 93 feet away, you are clearly a mule. They don't tell people. They give the impression that they are tracking people right to the drop boxes. Well, how but many of these people were like away. Uber drivers or, or mailmen or, or I mean, <laughs> or, or Greg Palace. I was filming and went to many drop boxes. But the thing is, and also most drop boxes are at state buildings. If you go to the state, they say, oh, people are going past this to this drop box every day. The same people. Well, if you work in that state building, you will walk within 50, 60 feet of that drop box. 
every You're day. You're a mule. Every day. But so I'm, my understanding of the way that geolocation data is sold, there's this huge brokerage business of this stuff. I mean, yeah, I, I wrote about could. it in the hidden history of, of Big Brother. But only the federal government can tell you who the, that person is. So if, if, if you're buying geolocation data and saying, oh, look, there's somebody who goes by, a drop, you know, goes by 24 drop boxes, there's no way to say that this is that particular black man. It could have been you know, a, a, a white Uber driver. I mean, it could have been anybody. Well, well I think that they should rename the film 2000 Mailmen, because we know that they go by a lot of uh, down the streets same, sure. every day, right? But now we could laugh at this, but it's very dangerous stuff. Again, they flash Soros, this picture, Zuckerberg, Stacey Abrams, but they don't actually say that they're the ones making the payments. By the way, they don't explain why someone would, why they would hire people to go to drop boxes where they are being filmed. When you can just put the ballot in the mail. We just put it in the mailbox, which aren't being filmed. (laughs) The other thing is you have to understand is that, remember, every single drop box and mail-in ballot in America has to be signed and the signature check. So they're claiming that they had 817,000 ballots perfectly forged and that no one with hundreds of thousands, these they said, were, so, uh, were stolen. No one walked into a polling station and said, hey, what do you mean I've already voted in a drop box? I haven't voted yet. My ballot was stolen. How come we don't have stolen ballot complaints? How come they went to drop boxes instead of mailboxes? And why is the only evidence a black man walking up to a box, putting in his ballot, and leaving? Once. This is literally the evidence. It looks very fancy with satellites and computer Well, this is just Alex Jones 101, Greg. That's amazing. Yeah, but it's going to be the excuse to say the vote shouldn't be certified in 2024, and then we have a 12th Amendment election. You're the expert on that, so I'll let you pick it up from there. Yeah. Greg Palast. By the way, it's all over at his website right now, gregpalast.com. Check it out. Or Greg underscore Palast on Twitter. Thanks, Greg. Okay. And both flash. Great talking to you. Thank you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit tomhartman.com. 